Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to Crime Conversations, the true crime podcast brought to you by CrimeCon UK, the ultimate true crime weekend. In the lead up to CrimeCon in London on September 25th and 26th, each week we're bringing two of our favourite podcasts together to find out more about their fascination with true crime. Each conversation will explore subjects including how they got involved in true crime, the cases that have stuck in their mind, the process behind their podcast and what they think makes a great true crime show. We'd also like to say a big thank you to all those true crime fans who sent questions to ask our guests. To find out who we'll be featuring on the podcast across the season and for more information on our London event, check crimecon.co.uk or visit our Instagram page at crimecon underscore UK. Let's find out who's on this episode. Hi, I'm Adam, host of the UK True Crime Podcast. Sure, I score zero for imaginative titles, I know, but I've been covering a different UK true crime every Tuesday since 2016. Hi, my name is Mark Williams-Thomas. I'm a former police detective turned investigative reporter. I host the Detective Podcast, which explores major crimes which are either unsolved, including missing people and potential miscarriages of justice. Busy time at the moment. I think the you know, the lockdowns affected people in so many different ways. But what it has, of course, helped is the people who have been at home, enabling them to watch television and listen to crime podcasts. I, I quite agree. And documentaries as well. And YouTube. There's so much true crime content out there for, to keep people busy while they're at home, Mark, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating genre, isn't it? I mean, I've lived in the world for a very long time now. And I think what has increased is actually the appetite. And as a result of that, of course, the broadcasters, the platforms where people can consume it and consume it in many different ways. So go back 15, 20 years. The only way you really could consume crime was on television. But now the platforms that enable it to be watched are YouTube, podcasts, social media platforms. It is really available to absolutely everyone of all generations. Yeah, and I think that's one of the big things for me about why true crime is so popular now. It's because a lot of people have had an interest, like me, from a very early age in true crime. But now with the internet and the forums, they can see that it's perfectly normal to have an interest in true crime, isn't it? And lots of other people who are normal, whatever that means, are really interested in true crime too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what got you into true crime? It's really interesting. So I remember when I was very young, it was a Sunday night, and I can remember it clearly. Me and my family, we'd just been listening to Radio 1. We'd been listening to the Top 40 on a Sunday evening. And afterwards, there was the news. And the news was that they'd arrested a man who they believed was the Yorkshire Ripper. And I can still remember now the shock of my mum and dad and, and talking around it a little bit. You know, I was only, I think I was eight or nine. Um, and it stuck with me that, that those words, the Yorkshire Ripper, it just sounded horrendous. And of course it was. 
And after that, I just started reading as much true crime as I possibly could. How about you, Mark? Where did it start for you? I think I first got interested in crime probably when I became a police officer. I don't think I paid a great deal of attention to it previously to that. I joined the police, age 19, became a special, then became a police officer and did just over 12 years as a police officer moving up to becoming a detective and working in murder and child abuse, really specialising in those two areas. And of course then I was absolutely hooked and hooked on major crime. You know, that's where my area of expertise is that's where I've had the opportunity to both investigate and lead major cases and of course the work that I do now just continues that interest I've got and uses my skills I you know have to say the skills that you learn as being a police officer are quite unique but they're also enable you to have the platform to do what I do now which is in essence try and get answers for the many victims out there who still don't know what's happened either to a loved one or know what's happened to the crime that they're involved in. There's lots of ex-detectives out there, really solid detectives who've done a great job. How come you got into this career after being a detective that so many others haven't managed to break into? I mean, that's a really interesting question. I think it's about creating, you know, I'm a firm believer that you create an awful lot of your own opportunities. You have to put yourself out. You have to put yourself into the right positions and you need to go seeking, looking for those opportunities. And I do all of that. You know, I network very well, but I'm also very determined. You know, nothing puts me off. And I will always go the extra mile in every piece of work. There's a very interesting saying that I used to have when I was in the police is that if you want something done, you always go to the very busy person. Uh, And it's very true. You know, the amount of I often say to colleagues in the police force, I'd say to them, you know, the amount of time you've spent trying to offload that job to me or to somebody else, you could have done it. And and it's so very true. And I think the crime there are as you say there's some incredible detectives and some come out and and move into a media career I think by and large they don't and there is still this big separation I think between the media and the police and perhaps a lot of lack of trust I think it's got better from the senior investigating officers more recently who kind of understand a bit more how important the media is but I do still think there's this big separation and it's important there is a separation but it's also important that they work together. You know, I always see the media as being the eyes and the ears of the public. Interesting you say that, that you think they've come closer with, with recent events. Do you, think, do you think it's almost an impossible task to be a senior police officer nowadays? It's an incredibly difficult one, yes. There's no doubt about that. The pressures, both internally and externally, are significant. And on many different levels, not just in terms of the pressures of solving a case, but the demands upon a senior investigating officer financially, every single penny is now counted and allocated in budgets when you're leading an investigation. That means you're having to make very careful decisions in terms of what elements of an inquiry you can pursue. So financially, you might not be able to send every element of DNA up for analysis. You might not be able to do all of the follow-through inquiries that you want to do to bottom something out. It's a massive task. When I was talking to, I've got lots of friends in the police service still, and I was talking to a detective friend of mine the other day, and he says, you know, the, the whole process now in terms of what is required from you 
when you submit a court file just makes the whole process so labour intensive and cumbersome that you know so many police officers just hate doing them. What a terrible way to be in. TV and podcasts and platforms are so full of crime now but I still think we we don't always go under the surface and tell the real story we kind of get caught up in the crime and that's important and the impact on the victims but I don't think there's that many podcasts that really pick deep into the the finite details of an investigation and what how difficult that is. I agree with you totally and it's really interesting you say that because with me it's real life so um my real life i work in hr i've got a young family and things and so for doing a different case for me each week i'm very aware of the limitations of my podcast what i can fit into a week's research it might be nine or ten hours or so but with your work in particular mark it's, it's really interesting i'm delighted to be talking to you because i've got a book coming out in the next few weeks on angus sinclair and I've referenced a lot of the research that you've done. I was going to ask you in particular about this. So you did some research, for example, up in Skipness in Kintyre in the Scottish Islands. And you found a witness to Anna Kenny, um, one of the potential victims, what's an unsolved crime, who went missing in October 77 in Glasgow. And she was found in April 79 in this island on Kintyre. And you managed to track down a shepherd 20 years later who may have seen Angus Sinclair's van in the area right tell me a bit about that so we looked at Angus Sinclair and Peter Tobin as part of the investigator series series two which is on Netflix and as part of that Angus Sinclair kind of jumped out and what made me so aware of Angus Sinclair's crimes is obviously he was convicted uh, of a number but there are still a significant number of murders that Angus Sinclair got away with. So the World's End murders he was convicted of, rightly so, and he was convicted of that as a result of DNA many, many years later. The cord that he used to tie up the victim's arms behind them as a result of him using his own hands to do that. He left DNA traces and the advances in technology, they found his DNA on the, on the um, items that tied up the girls. Brilliant. Uh, the problem with many of the other crimes that Angus Sinclair was quite clearly responsible for was that the items had never been kept by the police. They'd been destroyed or got rid of, and therefore they weren't able to be tested. Undoubtedly, had they have kept them, he would have been shown as to be the offender. Anna Kenny's case is very fascinating because quite clearly she was taken in a vehicle a very, very long way. It's a, it's a really significant drive. I don't know if you've driven it, but I drove it, and we drove from the town of the city centre, all the way up to the Mullican Tire and, and to the, this absolutely isolated piece of farmland where her body was recovered. And I think quite clearly the, the offender took her there. And what we did manage to find is this shepherd who saw Angus Sinclair's van. And he had to have been Angus Sinclair's van because Angus Sinclair's van was so unique. And it happened to be parked, literally a stone throw, a walk, a short walk, some 50 yards from where Anna Kenny's body was found. I mean, there's some incredible elements of that case. I don't know if you know, but Anna Kenny's body was recovered, identified through uh, through the skull and through the, the dental records. But what was fascinating about that skull, that skull got then used by police in Scotland uh, on the homicide scene investigating officer's course and was passed around. And it only then became known to the team who then did the review 
who looked into this and when they were passing around, they were saying, oh, this relates to this person's case. Did you know the family never knew that their skull had never been buried with the rest of the body and been kept by Scottish police and passed around in a crime kind of lesson, as it were. That's shocking, isn't it? It is shocking. We won't dominate on Angus and Claire, but we've asked for a public inquiry about all the mistakes that were made, all the material that was uh, lost by Strathclyde police. As you said, it means that the families didn't get answers, which, of course, is the key thing. It's, it's why we do what we do, right? Give the families the answers they need. There's too many unsolved cases out there. You know, I did a review last year, looked at unsolved cases, and there are far too many. And that's just unsolved murders, let alone the ones that are classified as missing, but quite clearly have been murdered. I think this country needs to do an awful lot more to tackle those problems. The issue is, and forces have tried to do it, you know, they've set up cold case review teams but the longer a case goes on and it hasn't got any witnesses or it hasn't got any movement of course the harder it is to then start to do a review i think if you look at the pattern of crime you'll see that there is a massive dominance of unsolved cases between the 60s and the 80s and that's essentially because policing in those days was very different to it is now of course there's no dna there's no cctv the external factors weren't there so it was much easier to get away with the crime and as a result of that there was an awful lot of people i mean you look at peter sutcliffe peter sutcliffe and I've got a, a programme that I'm doing on Peter Sutcliffe at the moment, which brings out some, some fascinating new information. But the fascinating thing about Peter Sutcliffe is at the time of his offending, West Yorkshire Police was in an epidemic of murders. Not just West Yorkshire, but the north of England was in an epidemic of murders. Yeah. Now, of course, he was being it was being put to him that there was he was responsible for many, many more murders. Now, there is no doubt that he killed other people but not to the scale of the people being put to him. There were other people committing those murders up and about around Yorkshire, Manchester, who got away with those murders. And those people will be sitting at home. And I say this to all offenders, you know, I just love the day and I hope the day that comes that those people who think they've got away with it haven't. They get a bang on the door and the police finally come to arrest them. The one that really sticks with me at the moment is the disappearance of 19-year-old Leah Croucher in Milton Keynes. You know, she was last seen in February 2019, but tragically, her brother Hayden took his own life in the November. Such a sad story. I mean, I went and did a report on it for, for this morning, ITV this morning, and I met Leah's parents and also spoke with the senior investigating officer that was leading the inquiry team. I mean, it is a fascinating case. She was in a relationship. She was seeing this person who was older than her, uh, and there was a, a discrepancy in terms of how much she was in love with him and, and what attention he was paying to her. Uh, and that's obviously where there became a problem with the brother, and it all became a bit of an issue. But what's fascinating about that case is the police have no idea they have absolutely no idea. They've done all the searches. They've looked around. There's an awful lot of water around that area. So they did go looking around that area, but they were absolutely unable to find anything that gave any information about where she is. Tell me, all, this, all these investigations you've done and the, and, and the things you've found have made a real difference to people's lives. But what moment of your career in true crime are you most proud of, Mark, and why? I don't think it's fair for me to say any particular case because I get so invested in all the cases that I work on and I work really hard. For every single case, there is something about them which makes, which I feel makes a difference. And that's why I do it. So, for example, 
There's a, a, a young girl who was murdered and we were looking at that case in relation to Peter Tobin and Jesse Earls, the girl, and the, it went through a coroner's court and the coroner's ruled that it wasn't unlawful killing. It was, a, it was a, uh, you know, an open verdict and the parents were saying this is absolutely murder. Now we've managed to get, after huge amounts of work, really hard work, we've managed to get the Attorney General to turn over the initial inquest, allow the case to go back to the High Court and we're asking for exhumation of that body and a number of other tests. Now, that is so, so rare. So that, in a way, is huge success, but it goes on behind the scenes. Uh, you know, my Jimmy Savile investigation, I mean, look at the change that that created across not just the UK, but around the world. It created a tidal movement in terms of attitudes towards sexual abuse. And I think we all do our own thing. You know, I think the podcasts that you do create awareness of people and I think it's really important what what we have to do and I think as podcasters as investigators whatever role we're performing I think it's a really important one to keep these stories these cases alive who for so many get forgotten and I often say to people and I deal with an awful lot of families I say to people do you know what it doesn't get any easier it becomes different but it doesn't get any easier and if anything it gets harder and I'll tell you why because when you initially lose a loved one, the police are all over there, the press are all over there, you've got lots of positivity, they'll catch the offender, they'll get justice, you'll know what's happened to your loved one. But when the answers don't come in, and those weeks become months, become years, become decades, your hope drops. And for so many of the people, that becomes harder and harder. And what ends up happening for many of them is that they'll think, well, they, they don't have any faith that they'll ever get any answers before they die. And therefore they are left in the worst kind of position. As well as producing your own work, what, what do you tend to watch or listen to, Mark? What are your favourite true crime content out there at the moment? So, that's, uh, so I'm a bit of a junkie, really. I go through stages. So at the moment, I'm in the a, a middle of, of editing two programmes, my next two programmes on ITV and Channel 5, so I'm massively busy. But when I don't, I kind of get consumed a lot by... I love dramas on TV. I love, I love watching dramas, so... The likes at the moment, I thought Grace looked, Grace was good. Of course, Line of Duty. Who doesn't like Line of Duty? Absolutely. <laughs> great. I mean, I've got a long-term relationship with World Productions who make uh, Line of Duty. Uh, John yeah. McKeary is just a brilliant writer. And, you know, I've been to their set when they've been filming. They're brilliant. I, I love them all. I think they're fantastic. So Line of Duty. So I love that. And, I mean, I think I'll tell you one other thing I did love on Netflix is I loved the... The Neighbour Next Door, which was the body camera sh footage from the police officer and the, the, the husband had killed oh, yeah. his wife and then and yeah. killed the kids. And I thought that was just fascinating. And I'll tell you why I thought it was so great, because it was 90 minutes and it just told the story very well. I think one of the problems for some of these platforms is they, is they say it takes so long. You know, I'm not interested in something that goes on for eight, nine parts when it could have been done within two or three. And I think that's a, uh, that's something that I would always say to any budding podcaster, program maker. You don't need to pull it out across loads and loads of parts. Make it really detailed, but make it very concise. And if you can tell it in four, then do it. Don't make it in six. Yeah, I, I think that's very true, isn't it? I think, especially in podcasts, when people start doing podcasting, we see so many podcasts out there at the moment, they, they almost feel there's a there's a certain length they need to get to. And you can feel that waffle. Really, it's as you said, you just tell the story and that's as long as it takes, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is. I, I tell you, I think podcasting is it's still yet to to massively take off. I think it's hit an awful lot of people. I still think there's a long way for it to go. But of course, it's an international thing. It's something that people can do very easily. They can just literally put their headphones in and off they go. And I, you know, I think the other thing I think will be fascinating, and I really am quite excited about it, is CrimeCon, because sadly the pandemic has affected it so far, but we will have it in September. And I, I'm quite interested to see the type of people that will turn up to CrimeCon and, and kind of what they're looking for. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's a real mix. I mean, if I get, just go for my Facebook group, so we've got about 60,000 people on my Facebook group, and you've got every single person you could ever see across society different jobs different countries we've got a lot of people surprisingly who've been who've been victims of crime actually and and that's generated their interest in crime and and they're all those that are going to crime con and there's a lot of them going to crime con are genuinely excited about seeing almost their, their heroes is that the right word it probably is in some cases so they've got the people they've seen on tv and as as we said at the very beginning those people they've really lived with over the last year and Let's say in my podcast, for example, you, you might have heard of 237 episodes of my podcast. They feel they know me. And it's the same with you when they see you on TV. You're more than just a, a media figure like you might have had 20 or 30 years ago. I think it's going to be a great event, don't you? No, no I think it's fascinating. I, I think you're right. I think there's an awful lot of people who have been victims of crime who come and watch or come and try and find out a bit more in terms of crime on a broader scale. But I think it fascinates so many people. I remember Radio Times did a little article off the back of my investigator series and they were basically saying that the majority of the people that watched it were middle-class women and, uh, you know, around 40s and 50s. And I do think there's a... It is a very interesting dynamics. I do think there's a huge female consumption of crime, perhaps slightly more so than men, but I do think it's opened up now. I think because of the different platforms that you can consume crime over, I think it's got a wider audience rather than just uh, you know adults. I think a lot of children now hugely consume it because they use the platforms of YouTube, the podcasts, and, of course, you know, the Netflix and the Amazons. Are you on TikTok yet, Mark? I am on TikTok. Do you know I do TikToks? It's a bizarre thing. So I thought, I won't do TikTok. I no one to be interested in what I do on TikTok. So I started to do TikTok. I've not been on it very long and I've got, you know, thirty thousand viewers and most of my um TikToks get about hundred and fifty thousand views. So wow. I don't do many, but I do when I do do them, I tend to do them about things that are quite interesting and I think people quite find them quite fascinating. It's 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 really I suppose it's the um the continuing evolution of true crime, isn't it? From being the no access 20 30 years ago to this so it's it's becoming mainstream isn't it in so many different ways that we've touched on today oh yeah i mean nowadays you know the blue light is the way of so many channels i mean it's it's great telly isn't it you can you've got suspense you've got intrigue you've got detail you've got characters and if you can just put a camera in with a police force and you can do that it's pretty cheap as well isn't it you know technology now's moved further forward most people now on some level could probably be a, a journalist some of them would be pretty terrible but everyone's <laughs> most people now have got access to a mobile phone which you can very quickly turn into a camera and, and report the news and we've seen that when we've had you know, major incidents develop particularly terrorism stuff where people on the ground almost start reporting the news and so the whole news story coverage is very different now than it was I think even five ten years ago 
I was speaking again to uh, Chris Summers, who's going to be at CrimeCon as well. He's a crime reporter. And, and he was talking about this and talking. And we were asking him about h- how this affects the job of the crime reporter. Um, and he, he spoke interestingly about quite a few changes. So firstly, and I was quite shocked by this, Mark. I'd be interested in your thoughts. He said that the crime reporting as itself, it major trials, is is just dying away. There are, sometimes there are no journalists at all at the major trials. And they're just getting their copy from really the police reports coming out of there. What are your thoughts on that? Journalism has massively evolved over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, and of course, it used to be court reporters would go and do, they'd sit in court and they'd listen to all the stories that come out of court and they'd, put, they'd file their copy and it would go in the local paper and probably be picked up by the nationals. Nowadays, courts very rarely have reporters in them unless it's a specific large case, in which case there may be a reporter or reporters covering it. But by and large, courts carry on now without it. And you may well have a pooled copy that comes from someone at PA, so Press Association might send somebody, but most reporters from newspapers now don't. You know, crime correspondents are far and few between. Sadly, most journalists now on a lot of the big newspapers just sit in front of a computer and that's how they get their story. rather than going and banging on doors. The whole process of journalism has massively changed. And I think one of the things that's come out of that is it just shows you how, how many of those journalists actually lack the understanding of the rules of court, what can and can't be said. All of that is just horrific. What about when you were a detective, Mark? And I suppose even now, do you have contacts in the press that you work quite closely with? Oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, during the police service, I had very close contacts in the, with the media. And now it's reversed the other way. So now I have a lot of officers, both from, you know, from junior ranks to all the way up to chief constables that I communicate with and talk to. And you know, we share information, we discuss things. The whole process of sharing information is very different now than it used to. There's real scrutiny around it. And to a degree, I agree with that. But sometimes that can become, you know, it can get in the way because I think the, the media play a really important role to the press. And press officers, again, you know, I deal with press yeah. officers across police forces all the time. And there are some brilliant ones. There's some absolutely brilliant ones, also terrible ones who really get in the way and don't help in any way at all uh, and probably don't really know what they're doing. So I, I think it's, it's a really difficult one and journalism has hugely changed. I mean, I'm a great advocate of, of investigative journalism, but it is very much yeah. dying out. I still read Private Eye. I must have read it since I was about 15 or 16. And some of the investigative work they do in that magazine is just still amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great, uh, yeah, it's a great magazine, isn't it? Private Eye, read it. And I think some of the little things that come out of it are are really good. They've done some great work over the years. And I think when you look at current newspapers, far, far, well, very few of them now actually do proper investigative reports And because it takes time. I mean, you look at my programmes, they take a long time to make. And they are very time-consuming. I mean, I I, I have a podcast series called The Detective, um, which is brilliant, and you know people love it who've listened to it. It's very, very different than any other podcast platform. It's kind of I make it. I make it a bit like I make my television program. It's minutiae. It pulls things apart. It looks at things very, very well. And the cases I take on, you know, at the moment I've got um, three cases on there. So I look at a case of miscarriage of justice in relation to terrorism, where it is quite clear the police officers planted the evidence, which is horrific. 
The second case yeah. I look at is a case of a young girl who's in, in jail for murder. And it clearly isn't a murderer. And I've now got some compelling evidence that I think we will get a, a miscarriage of justice out of it, which is really good. Oh. I mean, I've, a huge amount of work went into that. I then looked at the oldest missing persons case in London, uh, Mary Flanagan. And now I'm, a, I'm about to, when I get the chance in between the programmes I'm making at the moment, doing a podcast on the murder of Lee Boxall, of which I've got some compelling new evidence. And so they are, but they take a long time to make. What made you choose the podcast? Was it just to get to a wider audience as well as your TV? So I think there's three elements of, of investigative work is that as far as the media goes. I can write in a newspaper and of course that's quite easy to do because I don't need to use people's names and most people are happy to communicate and I just report about them. The second one is radio communication and obviously I can do it on the radio without having to identify people and the hardest is television because you have to show people. But what, what podcast has enabled me to do is to tell it in a longer time, so most of my television programmes on ITV or, for, or wherever they are for an hour, that's 47 minutes on the commercial network. Yeah, it's yeah. an awful, it's very hard to tell a story in 47 minutes, whereas in a podcast, I can let it breathe, I can tell the minutiae which the, pe- which the public love to listen to, and I can mm. also tackle areas that perhaps on, on uh, broadcast TV I wouldn't be able to do because of the legal issues. That's the great thing about podcasts. There's something for everyone, isn't there? So mine, I do mine every Tuesday. It's about 25 minutes, half an hour. And and sometimes I have to be realistic about what I can achieve. What my listeners want is consistency every week. They want to hear the same sort of approach, the same sort of way I, I talk about cases. And they want good research. Of course they do. They want interesting stories. They, they know that they can listen to me for half an hour. And then another time they can go and listen to you over a series of points and get something very, very different. But it's still true crime, isn't it? How do you choose your cases? No, so I I find things that interest me. So what doesn't interest me, I'm not really interested in the big stories, the big serial killers. What interests me is somebody who comes out of a pub, turns left, walks 300 yards and walks into a situation that they could never have foreseen happening. And it's about about real life that we all face, that we know that if we'd taken a different bus, a different train, we would have come face to face with some horrendous situation. So that's what I'm looking for. I'm always looking for the just the real stories that everybody can identify. Thank you for listening to this special episode. I will be at CrimeCon in London on September the 25th and 26th. If you'd like to come along, tickets are still on sale. Go to crimecon.co.uk and use the ticket code MWT to get 10% off.